Welcome. You're listening to The Sanctuary Podcast with Pastor Tullian Chavidjan. If you'd like to learn more about The Sanctuary, visit our website, thesanctuaryjupiter.com. So, as I mentioned last week, the story of Job is an honest look at pain and doubt from the life of someone who lost everything. We saw that in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Job. He lost everything. This was a man who had a lot of possessions. He had a big, healthy family. He himself was healthy. Because he was wealthy, he had a great reputation, he was a man that was known for his character and his integrity, and in one clean swoop, he lost everything. Now, you may not know what it feels like to lose everything, but you know what it feels like to lose. We all know what it feels like to lose something. Maybe you know what it feels like to lose a relationship. Maybe you know what it feels like to lose trust in someone that you used to depend on. Maybe you know what it feels like to lose a parent or child or a spouse. Maybe you know what it feels like to lose hope or to lose confidence or to lose a sense of purpose, a sense of direction. Maybe you know what it feels like to lose your health or to lose motivation or to even lose your faith. Maybe you just know what it feels like to get lost. Maybe you're lost now. Maybe you have lost a sense of purpose in your life. Someone that you love is no longer there for whatever reason, and you have lost yourself because for so long you defined yourself by this relationship that you had. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what it is that you have lost or what it is you are losing or what it is that you will one day lose. I just know this, that all of us know what it feels like to lose something even if we don't know what it feels like to lose everything. Well, the story of Job is about those intersections in life where our losses and God's love collide. It's about the fact that while life is full of losses, and it is, life in this world is full of losses. And this story is about the fact that while life is full of losses, we will never lose God. And the reason we will never lose God is because he will never lose us. I said this, I've said this many times here before, but I said it again on social media this week, that the reason I'm alive and standing before you today is not because in my darkest moments I held on to God. I wish I could say that. I've let go of God my entire life. The reason that I'm alive Today is because even when I've let go of God, he's never once let go of me, ever. It is his faithfulness that is great, not ours. So even though in this life we experience loss after loss after loss, even in the joyous moments that we get to experience in this life, we still have these losses that seem to haunt us, that seem to follow us, that seem to chase us, that seem to be just around the next bend. But even though life is full of losses, we will never, ever lose God because God promised that he would never lose us. So in chapter 1 and 2, we saw Job suffer disaster after disaster, tragedy after tragedy. He lost his children. He lost his health. He lost his wealth. And his initial response was good. We looked at that. You know, he loses his, I mean, all of his children die. He loses all of his wealth, all of his livestock, all of his wealth. 
And his immediate response, his initial response is a good one. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I depart. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And I chuckled at that a few weeks ago when we first looked at that, because I thought to myself, that doesn't describe my initial response to loss ever, ever. I usually get frustrated, I'm confused, I'm angry, typically with God because I know that he could have stopped these losses from happening and the fact that he didn't makes me wonder whether or not he's good. That's typically my initial response. Uh, and so we, when we looked at that, I thought, you know, um, it's a bit discouraging to see Job respond that way, to be honest with you, because I look at my own responses and think I've never responded that way. Um, but then we get to chapter three and I find myself comforted by Job's response because he finally and understandably buckles, finally. And for an entire chapter, he laments the day he was born. His pain is so intense that he regrets being alive. I mean, you ever feel like that? I have felt like that in dark moments a handful of times over the course of my life. Like, it would be so much better to just simply not be alive. Life in this world is painful. It's hard. And it would be so much easier to simply not be alive. Or, or better case scenario, it would have been better had I never been born. I have felt like that. I don't know if you have, but I have. And then three friends hear about his troubles, and they come, all three of them from different far-off places, they come to comfort him. But what they brought to the table of Job's suffering was not comfort, Okay, it was, it was more pain. They, they poured salt in his wound because they essentially blamed Job for his misery. All three of them in different ways essentially said to Job that his suffering was God's punishment for bad behavior. And if he wanted the suffering to end, he needed to clean himself up. He needed to get right with God. How many times have you heard that? I mean, I've heard that a hundred times if I've heard it once. Uh, growing up in, not in my home, mother, every time I talk about bad ideas of God, I heard growing up, my mom immediately texts me or calls me after the service, like, honey, you have to clarify that you didn't learn that at home. So, mom, I didn't learn it at home, although I learned some of it at home, but don't tell her. Uh, this was Christian schools and youth groups and Sunday school and churches and all of which I've said before, I am incredibly grateful to God for so much that I learned and so much that I gleaned in those environments. But there were some bad ideas about God floating around in the places where I was. And some of those ideas sounded very similar to Job's friends, very similar. You know, if you want, if you want your life to be right, then you have to get right with God. If you want your suffering to end, if you're going through a hard time, if you're going through difficulty, if you're in a crucible of ache or a season of pain, you need to repent of you know, unconfessed sins and make yourself right with God. You need to clean yourself up. You need to get right. Well, that's essentially what Job's friends were saying. They were making the wrong-headed assumption that Job was suffering because of what he had done or failed to do, that God was paying him back for bad behavior, and that if he wanted the pain to go away and the suffering to end, all he had to do was come clean before God and God would make all things right. If you, if you make yourself right with God, God will make things all right with you. Um, but we know that Job isn't suffering because of something bad he did. We know that. 
We read in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we, we saw that uh, Job was a devout guy. He was, he was devout. He wasn't being punished for bad things he had done. That's not why he was suffering. He was a devout guy. Um, he loved his family. He loved God. He was devout in terms of practicing his faith. He was a faithful man. Um, so we know he's not suffering because of something bad he did, but because his friends believed in a God of karma rather than a God of grace, they believed that God doles out misery in proportion to our sin. That's what they believed. They believed that pain is God's payback for bad behavior. Now, I mentioned last week and the week before that his friends were not wrong to assume that sin has consequences. We know that to be true. I mean, that, that goes without saying. You make a foolish decision, you will reap the benefits of that foolish decision. Uh, if you do stupid stuff, then stupid things will result. Okay, I mean, we, we know that to be true. Uh, but they were wrong to assume that Job was suffering because he had done something bad and therefore God was paying him back. That's where they were wrong. Job's friends prove that a wrong view of God can do a lot of damage. A lot of damage. Um, so I want to I stay with his friends for another week. I had planned to move on. But I want to stay with his friends another week. I made this decision at about 10.45 yesterday morning that I wanted to stay with his friends for one more week because I think this is so important because if we believe in a God that's hard, we will be hard. If we believe in a God that is graceless, we will be graceless. Um, I, was, I read a tweet out that I read this morning. I read it out loud to Stacy. I said, listen to this nonsense. Uh... There's a lot of nonsense on Twitter, if you hadn't noticed, okay? And this guy said this, okay? If God checked your browser history, would you get into heaven? That was the tweet, okay? And I have a friend who I've never met. His name is Steve Martin, not the Steve Martin, but a Steve Martin. Uh, and... The one reason, one of the reasons I am still on Twitter after all these years is to simply read Steve Martin's responses to these morons, okay? He trolls these people, okay? And uh, his response, I, I forget exactly what it said, but his response to this tweet, if God checked your browser history, would you get into heaven? His response was something like, of course, since when did our getting God's love depend on us and what we do? And then he went on to say some really nice things about uh, the tweet itself. Um, but I mean, his whole point was, at what point did we believe that, that God is a God of karma, that if we want to get in with God, that we have to make sure we dot all our I's and cross all our T's? That kind of perspective leads to two places— Pride, because you foolishly think you're pulling it off, or despair, because you're at least honest enough to realize you're not pulling it off. But it doesn't lead to honesty. It doesn't lead to realism. Um, Barbara Brown Taylor said something years ago that I found incredibly true to life. She said, I'd say that human beings never behave more badly toward one another than when they believe they are protecting God. Think about that. 
Okay, now this is election week. And some of us think that we're protecting God, you know? And we justify our crass, cruel, whichever side of the fence you're on, okay? You, you, we sort of justify our crass, cruel view of other people who are on the other side of the fence because we're doing it for God. She's right. I'd say that human beings never behave more badly toward one another than when they believe they are protecting God. Newsflash, God doesn't need our protection, okay? He doesn't need our defense. Um, as I said, Job's friends show that a wrong view of God can do a lot of damage. They didn't help their friend. They hurt him because they had a wrong view of God. Job's friends are the embodiment of religion. The embodiment. If you want to know what religion is, look at Job's friends. Religion is about doing certain things to get certain things. If I'm good, God is then obligated to love me. If I do what is right, God is then obligated to bless me. Okay, that's what religion is. Religion is all about earning and deserving and getting paid handsomely for a job well done. In religion, the motto is do good, get good, do bad, get bad. That's religion. So from a religious perspective, Job's friends are right. They're right. Their view of God is devoutly religious. Devoutly. But before we go bashing them, which I have quite enjoyed doing the past couple of weeks, before we go bashing them, I think we need, I think we, we need to at least admit, acknowledge at some level, um, that we are a little bit more like them than we want to admit. I am anyway. However much we may love grace with our lips, our hearts are religious to the core to the core. In fact, we are addicted to religious logic. Okay, now what, what do I mean by that? Whether you know that to be true about yourself or not, the fact of the matter is we are addicted, all of us, to religious logic. What does that mean? Well, religion allows us to be in control of our lives because it promises that if we can do certain things, meet certain standards, and become a certain way, we will then earn the life we deserve. We like that. It keeps earning power in our camp. It means that we can control the outcome of our lives, and we like that. We like being in control. Give me three steps to a happy marriage, and I can guarantee myself a happy marriage if I follow the three steps. Religion, um, as I said, keeps, keeps earning power in our camp. It obligates God to do right things for us if we do things right. The conditional logic of religion makes sense to us. So the real question is not how do we avoid becoming like Job's friends. The real question is how to recover from being the Job's friends that we already are. That's the issue. That's what's going on inside of me. I'm way more, that's why maybe it's so easy to pick on his friends because in the process I am uh, subliminally confessing my own sin. That I'm much more like this. 
I was telling Stacy yesterday, this is an embarrassment, I think I've shared this before, she told me I've shared this before here, um, but, you know, I was a sort of a social smoker, you know, cigarette smoker for many years, um, and I, I don't recommend it, by the way, I don't do that anymore, um, I'm too health conscious now, but there was a time in my life when I was young and immature and carefree and rebellious, which I'm none of those things now, as you know, um, that I like to smoke cigarettes socially, you know? Um, and I remember even as a young preacher, okay, yeah, I may smoke with some buddies on Tuesday night or smoke with some buddies on Thursday night, but I would never smoke on Saturday, ever, ever, because I just wanted to hedge my bets. I, I just, you know, I, I knew I had to get up and preach on Sunday, and I knew I needed God's help to do it, and I was concerned that if I smoked on Saturday, God would leave me all alone behind the pulpit on Sunday, so I hedged my bets. It was like an insurance policy. Well, that sounds stupid. It's a ridiculous confession, but if we look deep down into our own hearts, and over the course of our own experiences in life, I think we would all have to admit that at some level, in some way, that mentality sneaks in. We believe that God pays us back according to bad behavior. Um, so, as I said, the real question is not how do we avoid becoming like Job's friends, but how do we recover from being the Job's friends that we already are? You see... Christianity is anti-religious. I know that sounds strange because every time I say something like that, people are like, what are you talking about, man? I mean, Christianity is a religion. Well, this is what I mean. Christianity is all about grace. And grace defies religion, defies it, rebels against it. Religion feels safe. Grace feels risky. Religion is all about moral uprightness. Grace feels like moral vertigo. Grace feels like chaos. It's scary. Why? Because grace has nothing to do with earning, merit, or deservedness. In fact, grace is opposed to what is owed. Opposed. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. Religion is all about our goodness being rewarded. Christianity, on the other hand, is all about our badness being forgiven. Those are two very different things. Like Job's friends, we naturally conclude that good people get good stuff and bad people get bad stuff. So the idea that bad people get good stuff seems so wrong-headed on every level. That the bad get the best? What, are you kidding me? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or as we'll see in a little bit before communion, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus broke the bread and said to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. For you. While we were at our worst, God gave us his best. That's about as anti-religious as a statement as you will ever find. Religion hates that. Um, I, I got a note from a woman yesterday 
on social media, and she was struggling with the fact that her brother has basically disowned uh, her 22-year-old niece, his daughter, because she's more politically liberal, uh, because she uh, sort of identifies as being bisexual, and he's very conservative. And so they basically, he said, you can't, we, we don't want you around. She's one of, I think, 10 kids. She's the oldest of 10 kids. They don't let her around any of her siblings. Uh, they said she's not welcome in her home. And so this woman was writing me to say, is, is that right? Is that the right approach? And I simply said, No. It's the absolute wrong approach. Now, I'm all very aware of the fact that boundaries are necessary with certain people in certain circumstances. I get that. People have boundaries with me. I have boundaries with certain people. I understand that. Um, but that's a very different thing than shutting people out and cutting off all communication lines so that if perchance this person, this prodigal son or daughter may come wandering home, they have a place to go. I get letters like this all the time. People who believe that they're doing the right thing because God is a God of truth. And they talk about truth as if it's some hard thing rather than the way Jesus talked about it, which is the truth will set you free. Truth about me and truth about yourself in terms of your need for me lightens the load. Because now you can get off the performance treadmill and you can actually begin to rest. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you a to-do list. Is that what he said? Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you three steps on how to clean up your life. That's not what he said. He said, come to me with all of your burdens, all of your tiredness, all of your worn outness, and I will give you rest. Rest. I love the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Um, it's a parable that Jesus told, and the, the father in that parable is the embodiment of grace. Uh, the oldest son in that parable is the embodiment of religion. He can't understand that this rebellious younger brother of his, this audacious, rebellious younger brother of his would have the audacity to go to their father before their father was dead and say, I want my share of the inheritance now, which was only given in those days after death. So in essence, the younger brother's going to his dad and saying, you're dead to me, give me, the, give me what's coming. Now, I know what I would say if one of my kids said that to me, okay? But the father foolishly gave him his share of the inheritance, knowing that he would waste it. And he did. Went off into the far country, wasted it. As long as he had money, he had friends. As soon as the money ran out, all of his friends disappeared. Found himself destitute, homeless, needing a job. Got a job feeding pigs. Uh, didn't have enough food, didn't have enough uh, money to eat, so he had to eat what the pigs were eating. Finally, God brought him to his senses, and he thought to himself, the servants in my father's house live better than this. I'd rather go home and be a servant in my father's house than live like this. And so 
He gets up and with his head hung low, guilt-ridden and feeling ashamed, makes his way back home. And his father, Jesus says in the parable, who had been looking out for him day in and day out, saw him from a long way off, off on the horizon, coming home. And he ran with breakneck speed to meet his son, fell on his knees and wrapped his arms around his son before his son could get any confession out of his mouth, before his son could even say, I'm sorry, his dad said, it's party time. And the older brother who had always done everything right, had always crossed the T's and dotted the I's, was furious. What is this? What are you doing? You're rewarding this guy? I mean, honestly, I've been doing everything right from day one, and you've never once thrown me a party. I deserve a party. He doesn't, and you're giving him one. That's religion to the core. That's religion. Um, Religion, as I said, uh, keeps earning power in our camp. It's one of the reasons why we're attracted to it. We may not say we're attracted to religion for those reasons, but we love control. We love to be able to control our lives. We love to be able to control other people's lives. We love to be able to control circumstances, outcomes, and all of those things. So we like it. Religion feels safe. Grace, on the other hand, because it is opposed to what is owed, feels, feels risky. Um... The idea, as I said, that bad people get good stuff is infuriating. Grace refuses to play by religious rules. In fact, grace is a liberating, listen to this, a liberating contradiction between what we deserve and what we get. The Bible is always pounding home that God relates to us according to grace, not fairness, or not what we deserve. That's what Psalm 103 said. He treats us not as our sins deserve. Can you imagine what it would be like if God treated us as our sins deserved? None of us would be here. There would just be this of smoke, and everyone would be gone. I mean, we would, we would uh, you know, uh, so what's the combustion, what is it called? What, spontaneously combust, thank you. You were paying attention in seventh grade science. I was not. Um, I mean, this idea that God relates to us based on grace, not fairness, is, is good news. The fact that he relates to us based on his love and not based on what we deserve, that's hugely relieving. Because however hard you may think life is now, can you imagine if God was against you in addition to everything else? If God was actively going after you to pay you back every time you screw up in thought, word, or deed by doing certain things or failing to do certain things? Grace is love coming to you that has nothing to do with you. It is undeserved favor. Grace is unconditional love given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. 
Religion may offend us because it tells us what to do. I talked a little bit about this last week. Religion can be, if you're anything like me, I'm sort of a natural-born rebel. It's made my life a little harder than it could have otherwise been. Um, But religion may offend us because it tells us what to do, and we, I, don't like anybody telling me what to do. But grace can offend us even more because it tells us that there's nothing we can do. And if there's one thing that offends us more than being told what to do, it's being told that we can't do anything, that we can't earn anything. It's humiliating. What do you mean, I can't earn it? You're telling me that if I do the right thing, maintain a posture of moral uprightness my entire life, steer clear of the bad stuff, pursue the good stuff, love people, exercise devoutness in terms of my faith, you're telling me that if I do all those right things, God is not then obligated to bless me? That's offensive. Because it, grace robs us from the control that we love, that we're so addicted to. Um, That's why we so naturally Resist grace because it has nothing to do with us. <laughs> it has nothing to do with our efforts. So on the one hand, it's, it's good news. It's very liberating, but it can also be offensive. Um, and because it has nothing to do with us and our efforts, it wrestles leverage out of our hands. And we hate that. I hate it. Leverage is like a drug to me. <laughs> You know, um, and grace wrestles leverage out of our hands. We, we can't buy God's blessing with our goodness, and that drives us nuts. Drives us nuts. Um, you see, the, the currency of keeping the rules and being good may buy us a gold star here and some respect there, but it can't buy us a gram of affection with God. Not a gram. And religion can't handle this. It it can't. Religion is allergic to grace by nature. I mean, over and over again, I, I have fallen in love afresh with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. I'm absolutely convinced that Jesus would not be admitted to membership of 99.999% of churches in this world. I'm convinced. You read the Gospels, you read, you read just how anti-religious Jesus himself was. No one battled religion more in all of human history than Jesus himself. Um, and you read the Gospels and you're like, man, I mean, this guy was a real rabble-rouser to the religious community. Um, And I I, I was struck by this again uh, this week, that over and over again in the Gospels, we see Jesus defying every religious impulse we have. Every one. Bad people are rewarded. Good people are rebuked. (laughs) Doesn't make sense. And everybody's idea of who ought to be first and last is turned upside down. I mean, he was pissing people off left and right. The religious people. He was driving them nuts. 
It's like, what do you mean? We've been working our entire lives to get to the front of the line. We've been working our entire lives to be first, to do right, to get it right. And you're telling me that in God's economy, that currency is no good? Um, in parable after parable, Jesus reveals a God who chooses to love all the wrong people. The bad son, not the good son. The Samaritan, not the priest. Those who broke the rules on the Sabbath, not those who kept them. The hungover late day workers, not the diligent all day workers. I mean, he seemed to take a tremendous amount of pride in uh, wrecking every religious category the religious leaders had. He was always making the merit mongers mad because he befriended and loved and touched the outcast and the misfit and the leper and the liar and the cheater and the sexually deviant. Always. He went to the wrong places. He said the wrong things. He hung out with the wrong people. I mean, what, what, what made people furious was Jesus' irresponsible habit of loving sinners. Made them furious. The point is not that we should sin more, okay? Paul addresses that in Romans. He's talking about the outrageous, amazing nature of God's one-way love, his grace, the unconditionality of his love, the outrageousness of his mercy. Um, and then he says, I know what you guys are probably thinking, that since there is more grace, wherever there's sin, there's more grace, the question then naturally arises, well, shall, shall we go on sinning more so that we get more grace? It's a good deal. I mean, that benefits everybody, doesn't it? I sin more, and I get more of God's grace. And Paul says, no, if that's what you think, you've misheard everything I said. Okay, that, that, that's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, a heart that has truly been gripped by God's grace and God's love and God's forgiveness doesn't ask questions like that. They don't, they don't, they don't immediately ask a question that says, well, how much can I get away with then? Rather, what they say, their hearts are so gripped by the fact that God has loved them at their worst and that he hasn't turned his face away from them at their worst, and their response is, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. I want to love you more and my neighbor more, not less, because you love me. So the point here is not, uh, okay, we should go out and sin more. The point is that we should lay down our silly insistence that our good behavior and rule keeping obligates God to throw us a party. That's what I'm saying. Job's friends were under the illusion that Job was being punished for bad stuff. And if Job wanted the good stuff again, all he had to do was make himself right before God. Well, that's a deeply religious idea. You can find that idea in lots and lots of religious circles of all stripes. Um, see, God's love for us and his acceptance of us is an undeserved gift, pure and simple. Grace is the gift that has no strings attached. It's, it's one-way love. 
The gospel of grace announces that Jesus came to give rest to our efforts at trying to earn love and favor by what we do. Now, we may not think we do that with God. We may go, I know, we, we don't try to get God to love us more by doing good things. I know that much, you know, I, I believe that. But I'll tell you what, we, we try to secure love and favor from other people all the time by what we do, all the time. Well, the gospel of grace announces that Jesus came to give rest to our efforts at trying to earn love and favor by what we do. Because of what Jesus has done for you, you no longer have to live your life to get accepted. You live your life as one who is already accepted. That's relieving. If we were to carefully dissect the motivational structure of our heart and why we do certain things, why we say certain things, why we don't do certain things or don't say certain things, at the heart of it, to be honest with you, is our desire to get love and to get acceptance from the people around us so that we can feel secure relationally, so that we can feel like we matter. Uh, if I can get the respect of my coworkers, uh, then I'll matter, I'll be significant. We try to secure security and significance and all those things by the things that we do. Well, this idea that because of what Jesus has done for you, you no longer have to live your life to get accepted, you live your life as one who is already accepted. Because you are fully and finally accepted by God, you can endure rejection from other people. Because of what Jesus has done for you, you no longer have to live your life to get love. You live your life as one who is already loved. You live from love, not for it. From acceptance, not for it. Because of what Jesus has done for you, you no longer have to live your life to get into the party. You live your life as one who is the guest of honor at the party. God is with you even if everybody's against you. And he will never blink and he'll never bail. You can do the stupidest stuff, the most sinful, selfish stuff. You can do the most heinous stuff in the world. And if you belong to God, he's got you. And there's nothing you can do to wiggle your way out of his love and affection. You can't. Because his love and affection isn't dependent on what you do or don't do. His love and affection for you is dependent on what Jesus has done on your behalf. Um, and even though we may believe this is true, I mean, I believe this is true. I believe everything I'm saying to you this morning is true. If I didn't believe it was true, I wouldn't be saying it. But even though I, I believe this is true, I, I never seem to uh, get over my tendency to assume that God is in the business of rewarding the rewardable. That God is in the business of empowering the powerful and giving the gold star of blessing to the well-behaved. Th that... That mentality, even though as I get older, it fades more and more into the background, it's still there. I still find myself thinking those thoughts about God. I, I told a story many years ago about, uh, about uh, I don't know, he's maybe sixth grader. So what is that, 11 years old? Kid that was in, our, in the church that I pastored in Fort Lauderdale. And, uh, and he, he was just kind of a brat. You know, he's kind of a, just a rude kid. Um, and I was always really nice, like, hey, man, how's it going? And he'd be like, ah, 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 and he'd like run the other way. And I'm like, you know, if, if I was his kid's parents, I'd freaking spank the kid. I mean, it's just a, it's a real pain, okay? Um, 
And I remember thinking to myself, like Jesus' disciples in John chapter 9, why is this kid like this? Clearly, it's his parents' fault. I mean, they're not doing what they should be doing, or they're failing to do what they ought to be doing. I mean, clearly, this kid is the way he is because his parents, I mean, it was immediate to me, immediate. And I had to catch myself and go, I still think that way when it comes to how God relates to us. Even though, as I said, it's becoming increasingly faint, maybe pushed to the background a little bit more. It, there's still a conditional framework that I'm operating from when it comes to God because a conditional framework is really all we know. We come into this world, you want certain things, you have to do certain things. In relationships, if you want to get certain things out of it, you have to put certain things into it. I mean, we live in a conditional world. We are conditional people. Conditionality is a mark of the fall that took place in Genesis chapter 3. It broke every good thing God made. And as a result, conditionality seeped into every nook and cranny of life in this world, internally and externally. And so this idea that God loves us unconditionally is very counterintuitive. It doesn't make a whole lot of natural sense. We don't really understand it. It seems like it's from a galaxy far, far away. We don't understand it. It's a whole different species of thinking. And yet it's the way God relates to us, thankfully. Because as I said, if God related to us based on what we deserve, we would all be in big trouble. The fact that he relates to us based on his grace and not fairness is a gift to us. And so even though we may believe in grace, we seem to never get over our tendency to assume that, that God is still rewarding the rewardable. And yet, okay, grace upon grace, his gracious disposition toward us does not depend on our capacity to believe it. Okay, like, I, it's not like in those moments where I'm believing in grace, God is gracious. And on those moments where I'm not believing in grace, God is not gracious. That his his gracious disposition toward me does not depend on my capacity to, to believe it because there are moments when I believe it and moments when I don't. I believe, help my unbelief. And that's the story of my life. But when we finally come to the end of ourselves, there he will be. Just as he will be the next time we come to the end of ourselves and the time after that and the time after that and the time after that. Um, I uh, began reading Bono's memoir last night. I ordered it on Friday, came yesterday, in the middle of sermon prep, took a little break, read a little, read a little bit more last night while my wife, who is a very proud Texan, was watching her Houston Astros win their second World Series of all time. Um, and because baseball is the most boring sport known to mankind, I laid in bed alongside of her to support her reading Bono's memoir, okay? Um, he, uh, he captures this so well. At the center of all religions is the idea of karma. This is his words now. What you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics... Every action is met by an equal and opposite one. 
It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe, and yet along comes this idea called grace to upend all of that as you reap so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason, he says. Love interrupts the consequences of your actions. I love that line. Love interrupts the consequences of your actions, which, he goes on to say, in my case, is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. Honest, true, so true. So no matter who you are, what you've done, what you've failed to do, what you are doing, or how far you may have gone, the Father has kept the lights on and the door open for you. If you've enjoyed this message, be sure to subscribe to the Sanctuary Podcast. You can find it on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast.